Miles, we are back. Episode five. Week number six at the Cincinnati Bengals. Tristan, the Seattle Seahawks went out. They lost a football game. They lost it 17 to 13. And uh, I actually feel pretty good. (laughs) Well, I was, was, wait, was it 17 to 14? It was 17. Uh, Oh, man. This is good radio. (laughs) This is good. This is, this is good. Uh, 17 to 13. Okay. Yep. Uh, My expert analysis showed that the Seahawks scored 13 points in this game. And next week, we will be uh, discussing pottery um, on the podcast and the best ways to make it. Um, They lost a football game. They flew all the way out there. Yeah. I I was going to say they lost a football game, but found themselves maybe that is that actually might be the story of this game that they they lost it but i feel like they found a lot of stuff too on the way even though there's plenty of things that we'll get into that were frustrating about this game right there's plenty of things that i wish they would have done better you wish they would have done better and yet neither of us are discouraged i don't think i don't think either either of us are sitting here thinking it was a complete failure of a, of a week and there, there's certainly a lot of interesting takeaways from this game. Um, I, I definitely just kind of going into it. I, I felt way better about this loss than the Rams loss. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that will be the title of this episode. Um, they lost the game, but found, I, I would rather say something than themselves. They found fill in the blank. Uh, my title is the Seahawks scored 13 points. Count them up. No, uh, it was very interesting, even just kind of hearing national, uh, nationally, fo- or like whole league-wide focused people. It, it really was kind of like, it, it, was, it, was, it was one of the most positive losses I could remember. There's very little criticism of the Seahawks inside or outside of the team, I thought. Pretty simple stat, but just looking at the total yardage of the game, they almost doubled up. The Bengals' offensive yardage. The Seahawks gained 381 yards on the day, and they held the Bengals to 214 yards. After those first two touchdown drives the Bengals had, if you learned that they ended the game holding Joe Burrow in the offense, which was clicking Joe Burrow and the calf looking very healthy, to hold them to 214 yards on the day is a real accomplishment. Um, There were... (laughs) It, it sounds really stupid to say, but really watching this game, everything went right for the Seahawks except, except scoring points. Now, that is what you need to do to win the game is score the points. But it, it was a very interesting I, – I don't even remember any other game. Just And it's not that the Seahawks gave it away either. They weren't the better team that suddenly gave it away in the end. They really kind of played the more complete, thorough game and just ended up the loser. It was it was kind of bizarre. Yeah, it it was definitely one of those where, I mean, to your point, um, outside of the twenties, they were moving the ball like a madman, you know. And even in the twenties, I mean, it really was the very reddest of the red zone where they started to fail. Right? I mean, it seemed like it was around inside of the ten, inside of the fifteen, as it really got hot in the kitchen. Um, they they started to, to to falter a little bit. Um, you know, one thing I was, 
noticing during this game. And I'm actually a little surprised that Pete went this way. So a few of those opportunities inside of the red zone, um, and maybe you'll remember this. And if I was a better podcast host, I would remember it exactly. We went for it at least one time, fourth down in the red zone. Did did they go for it more than once, uh, fourth in whatever inside the red zone? Well, there there are definitely two fourth down attempts in the fourth quarter. The one with about three minutes left and the one to, to wrap the game up. To wrap it up. So I think it's the three minute one that I'm thinking of that I was actually really surprised that Pete didn't kick it. And I heard him interviewed after the game. He he felt very good about the strategy not to kick it. And he wasn't second guessing himself. But and I don't know if you watch this game um, on Saturday. Uh, UW played Oregon and that's a game watching Oregon lose that game. Over and over again, I watched a coach, a young coach, fourth and whatever, you know, fourth and goal going for it over and over again, or, you know, fourth and one within the 20 going for it over and over again. Um, And as I watched that game against Oregon, my takeaway was a young coach that is set to go aggressive no matter what on fourth down lost his team the game because he just didn't take the field goals. Like he just did not, he refused to kick field goals when they were available. And my takeaway from that game, I thought about Pete and guys like Bill Belichick. And I was like, you know, older coaches have this, this shtick that they're more cautious or whatever, or like this, this deal that they're going to take the points and that somehow that's old school. But it it occurred to me as I was watching these young coaches on Saturday go for it over and over again on fourth, you know, caution is something one acquires, you know, it's not as though you're, you're born and you're cautious, like, or I mean, maybe some people are, but like coaches that make conservative decisions, make those decisions because like they've, they have felt the brunt of, or the disappointment of going forward and it not working, you know? So I feel as though I was a little surprised, I guess I'm trying to say to see Pete not take the points because it, it to me, it seems like a, um, like an experience thing, like experience kind of teaches you like, Hey man, take the points when you have a chance. Now it, it could just be that this was a different situation. And I'm not understanding it, but I did have the feeling when they went for it on that fourth, I was like, man, I mean, we, we could kick a field goal right now and make this a lot closer and, you know, kind of give us a little more wiggle room. So not to, uh, not to nitpick on Pete. Um, and I don't think he lost us the game by any means, but um, that was kind of one of the first things I noticed about the game. It's like, oh, you know, they, they didn't take the points when when I thought that maybe they had a chance to. I really like your point about, yeah, maybe age and experience kind of beating some caution into you. Maybe for a veteran coach, you know, there maybe there was a job lost along the way and you had to move your family across state lines to the next one because you know, maybe a fourth down didn't work out or something like that. Um, so just, uh, they were, they faced fourth down with two minutes, 40 seconds left to go in the game. They were down 17, 13, and they were at the six yard line, which I think is maybe that, that six is kind of a weird gray area. You know, if they're, if they're maybe three and in, you definitely go for it. Um, I I made a note about if they should should have gone for that field goal at that point. To me, it didn't. I think uh, in retrospect, looking back at the game, because they they lose they lose the ball 
and they they force they force the Bengals to go three and out in only 15 seconds, you know, and then they get they march it down to the goal line again. I think it's only in retrospect, though, that for me that that decision looks obvious to kick one field goal and then the next field goal, and you win it uh, 19 to 17. It it at that moment it didn't feel at that moment with only 240 left. It did really feel like hey, Bengals just need one first down here. And they kind of got like one or two first downs, and they they're and then they're just putting the game away. So, um, do you think it's just Pete's youthful nature that he went he? Uh, but he's not known as a very aggressive coach in that way. Um, yeah, it was it was a weird. It was like a huge decision, but it also felt like on the side in terms of like what actually determined the game. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Pete mentioned. I think it was up Rock and Salk. He mentioned. Exactly what you just said. You know, they had the ball for 15 seconds, right? And they got the ball right back and got to get right back down to the goal line again. So I, I will say to his point, they got plenty of bites at the apple to try to get in and and it worked. Like, I mean, it if if you were to tell Pete, hey, crystal ball, you're you're gonna if you go for it, if you don't get it, they'll they're only gonna possess the ball for 15 seconds. And within a minute, you're going to be right back here and it's going to be first and goal again or whatever it was. He, I mean, he would be like, yeah, well, obviously I'm going for it then. Like, that's a dream scenario. So it did. I mean, that's that's what's freaking weird about this game. Like so many things played out exactly the way you would want them to. And I really felt like we were going to win the game. I mean, to me, it seemed really obvious towards the end there. Like we got the ball back. We we're able to move the, the ball all game we're going to make this happen. So um, yeah, I'm not going to nitpick it too much. Again, I think, you know, we both kind of have this, this overriding thought that, um, that it was a really good game. I, I wrote down that this game was more disappointing than discouraging. Um, and I think that that perfectly sums up my feeling of the game. I didn't walk away. Sometimes after a Seahawks loss, I'm kind of frustrated for a few hours afterwards. I didn't feel that at all. I really felt, I felt great. Um, a couple of observations for me just really quickly to me, the defense got better and better throughout the game. You know, it started out, we gave up two quick touchdowns and then really they did nothing after those first, I think it was the first two possessions, right? That they had the ball, they were able to move it on us and get touchdowns. Um, they weren't after that. I thought, and I, I don't know what the actual takeaway is on this next point I'm going to make. And I, I kind of want to ask you about it. Shane Waldron, his initial sequence, right? So my understanding is basically every um, offensive coordinator scripts out, you know, the first 15 plays or whatever of the game, right? So here's in a perfect scenario, how it's going to work out for me. I have to imagine I mean, his game script to start the game was near perfection, right? I mean, just drive down the field, take up, I think, seven and a half minutes. I mean, it was unbelievable how much time we possessed the ball. And you you go in for what was a pretty easy touchdown for Ken Walker on the right side. I mean, he just he basically walked in. Um, it was actually kind of a cool play. Jake Bobo pulled around on that to, to be a lead blocker for, um, Kenneth Walker. And he was a lead blocker, but absolutely unnecessary. Like he had, he waltzed into the end zone on that play. Um, what I wonder about 
obviously the, the the offense struggled after that first, or I should say in the red zone, the offense struggled after that initial drive. And I wonder if the takeaway should be, and I guess this is my question to you, should our takeaway be that Shane Waldron had a very good initial script, but then he was unable to adapt to the, um, you know, kind of to the, the, the chess match of, I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And the defensive coordinator was able to adapt. Shane wasn't. Thus, you know, we kind of stalled in the red zone after that moment. Is that what we should take away kind of from this game, from a Shane Waldron perspective, that his initial game plan was unbelievable, but he just wasn't able to kind of parry um, the blows that came after that? It is. I think. I'm losing track of the number of games this has happened, but it does feel like the Seahawks opening drive offense is is like historically great. Like they really do not get stopped. They don't even really get huge plays, but it seems like that first drive every game is taking a lot of time, a lot of plays and ending up in a touchdown. So yeah, good, good. uh, Shane Waldron has a, a huge role in that. I think it's hard to blame him. 381 total yards is pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. I think what ended up happening, because really what we're talking about are those last two drives that failed in the fourth quarter, right? And I thought it was a moment where the game just really played, lined. They it just it really lined up for the Bengals and what they have invested in. So as a positional group, they've spent the second most on their defensive line of any team in the NFL. And all four of their starters are getting like way, way higher than average money. The, the the entire four defensive linemen. And just the way it ended up on both of those drives, it wasn't like the Hawks were facing third and fourth and short. They were in really obvious passing situations. So I think it kind of sat up for the for the game to really the Bengals really rely were able to rely on this position group that they've invested so much in and actually look back to see uh out of all the Seahawks opponents if there were other positional groups we faced that were like top five in spending like for example the Seahawks are second overall in the NFL in their secondary so they've like really invested in the secondary that's been a big strength and really the uh so there were were just a couple it was Detroit their offensive line is number two in spending and their quarterbacks number three so Seahawks really withstood that. Lions put up a lot of points, you know. And the other one was the New York Giants. Their defensive line, number three overall in the league, didn't. Re- and then uh, Giants also fourth overall at running back. And Saquon was out for the Seahawks game. So, you know, Detroit quarterback and offensive line and Cincinnati defensive line are the really like pricey units that we faced. And I, I think Cincinnati, instead of criticizing Shane Waldron, I think the game really lined up for Cincinnati to for it to be in control of kind of their proportionally highest paid group. I mean, and I would always advocate for that. Like the if I could invest in any unit on a football team, if I was playing GM, it would certainly be um, defensive line, mostly based off of as a Seahawks fan, the old St. Louis Rams teams that we would play they were such bad teams. They were like 13 and three teams every single year. I'm sorry, reverse that three and 13 teams every year. They would win three, four games year in and year out. And yet they were always a really hard team to play 
because those teams always had really good defensive lines. And no matter what, it, it was just always I felt as though it was it was an equalizer um, that you could have a fairly uninspiring team in other positions. But if you're dominant on the defensive line, you can cause good teams really big problems. And especially if those good teams happen to have a couple of injuries on their offensive line, now you're really cooking and you can, you know, end of the day, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end. Those, those positions are all dependent on offensive and defensive line play. So when I feel like when you're talking about, a defensive line, you're talking about a completely independent group, a group that doesn't need other people to perform for them to look awesome. Um, and so it's a, to me, I mean, kudos to them. I, I hope that we continue to do that. I, although I do like the way our D line is playing. I think we're getting stronger and stronger every week. Um, I love the way the defensive line's playing, but um, yeah, that, that's a really interesting tidbit and it makes sense. I, I'm trying to think through, I mean, Man, it, it kind of makes what we did against um, the Giants all that more impressive. And actually, it might speak to why the Giants did so well against the Bills this last week, um, because that defensive line causes trouble, right? So that's a that's a really cool observation. Yeah, despite the Hawks, you know, winning that game big, it, it, they did not have a dynamite offensive performance uh, against the New York Giants either. I wonder if if going forward, because because that. The game opening drive, as you mentioned, Bobo functioning as the fullback doesn't. He, Kenneth Walker doesn't really need him for the one yard run. I wonder if this team is actually pretty good at like, <laughs> like within three yards of the goal line. But then once you start to get back to like you know four yards and beyond of either the first down or the end zone in the red zone, that's where the problems like really start to come up. I've, I've got the red zone numbers, by the way. Because I, I think this was obviously their huge problem and uh, going forward. So for the year, the Seahawks are completing 41% of their passes in the red zone. And they are averaging 1.72 yards on all red zone plays. Compared to if they are on their own 21 to 50, so like getting the drives started, they're... They're completing 75.9% of passes and they're gaining an average of 6.8 yards per play. So that's, they're, they're like really cooking when they're like getting the drives started, but there's definitely a problem when things are, are getting really compact. But then also maybe there's not that much of a problem when it's a one or two yard compact space, but it's like getting chunks of yardage in the red zone. I really don't know what, what the fix is, but that's definitely their biggest problem. That's why they lost this game. You know, I think if they just had um, one wide receiver that was just an absolute physical specimen, I mean, just one guy that was really tall and really, really strong and very physical, like that might help. Um, I feel like the other thing that could help them in the red zone would be not just having one, but like multiple, like, I mean, in a dream world, if you could have three tight ends that were great at run blocking and pass catching, that were all very, very large. I mean, and if one could be like a first round pick, so, you know, you know, he has like the pedigree for just game breaking type performances. Um, and then, I mean, if you could have like some running backs that could catch the ball 
you would just think that that would all really help in your red zone production. So hopefully those are things the Seahawks can figure out going forward. Um, I don't know where you find those guys. You know, I mean, where do you find an Adonis? Where do you find human perfection and physical form at wide receiver? I don't know, uh, but I'm not a GM, you know, so it's it's up to John Schneider to find these these key positions and, you know, plug them in. Yeah, it would it would be amazing if the Seahawks could get all of those people into their building. I don't know how they'd do it though. Yeah, I mean, if you could get your third tight end to be six eight, I mean, you would think that would really help in the red zone. You know, you, you think you could throw it up to him every now and again. Um speaking of wide receivers though, kind of fun seeing Jackson Smith uh get a little cooking out there. I, I'm going totally off script. I'm just right now, this is Folks, if you if you can't tell, this is jazz Mahomes out of the pocket. Yeah, this is we're we're doing little jazz right now. I'm off my game script, but um, but just speaking of the wide receivers, it was nice to see them use Jackson Smith and Jigba down the field, kind of in a more I don't know, just in a wide receiver kind of way, and not in a throw it at the line of scrimmage Percy Harvin kind of way. Like they actually got him moving around and doing some stuff, and you know he looked he was looking good. I. I I really do feel like we're on the cusp of it. I think that we're close to Jackson Smith kind of breaking out here, which would be pre- pretty fun. Yeah, I had a feeling he would just he would look okay if they just yeah threw him the ball beyond the line of scrimmage. There was a, a we're not the only people to think that, but uh, yeah, it, it was really encouraging. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, going back on script. For me, just looking at um, at the offensive line, it seems like it seems to me as though this game kind of caught up with them having to duct tape the line together. You know, we, we, we've been a lot of injuries, obviously, even throughout this game. They talked about it, you know, and in fact, I think I, I heard Brady Henderson say or maybe tweet out that Phil Haynes was kind of limping off the field. Like, I mean, I think he really battled through a game where he had to play through an injury or, or at least play hurt. Um, uh, Phil Haynes was in, in that spot. Jake Curran was in that spot where I think they both were playing injured. And I wonder if you par or parlay that, I don't know if that's the right word. If you combine that with the fact that you just mentioned, this is one of the highest paid defensive line groups in the league. So, you know, Typically, you would assume that means this is a pretty damn good defensive line. Excuse me for my language. This is a family show. A pretty doggone good defensive line. Um, You know, it it seems as though the duct tape nature of the O-line crew kind of finally caught up with them. Even though we got Charles Cross back, which is great. Um, You know, you're talking about an injured right guard or, or, excuse me, an injured left guard, right? Um, An injured right tackle. Um, and then a rookie at right guard um, being Bradford. And, you know, I, I think that maybe from a pass pro perspective, um, this game, they finally kind of had to pay the piper, which is, which is a bummer. But it seems as though I would have loved to see Gino get rid of the ball a little faster during this game and in, in certain key moments in the red zone. But also, man, that pressure was coming fast. It was coming fast and really... It's it, it has been impressive because this is the fourth straight game with that that line you know pieces really shuffled around and pe- people having to get in there on on short notice and it it really only it, it it was not an issue for the entire game it was really only on these money plays at at, at the very end 
Um, I started listening this week to uh, the Kelsey Brothers podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard that yet. It's pretty good. It is funny to think that Travis Kelsey, uh, one of the most famous schedules in America right now, he he does the same thing we do each week. So I got to gotta set aside an hour to podcast but but they answered this question of could an average person gain one yard in the nfl they have a segment called no dumb questions and that was the one they took and i i like their answer because um their answer was it was situational and so it was like and and basically they're like hey if it's third down or fourth down and one and it's kind of on the line it's like no you're not you there you're there's no way and I thought I thought about that with these these crucial third and long third and fourth downs the Seahawks faced in the red zone where it's like I know it looks the alignment looks the same as it has the entire game but this is a different game right now this is where it's you know it's all on the line and, and that's where the the Cincinnati D line came through yeah no yeah it's funny I was thinking about that this last week it's kind of funny that someone else thinking about it I I was watching some game where the quarterback was just terrible. And like, I had the same thought of like, if I was quarterback for, and maybe it was the Steelers, I don't know who it was, but it was one of the teams with a really bad quarterback. Um, and I was sitting there, I was like, could I, could I make, could I get one yard? Like, could I do like, and I think maybe what made me think about was at the time the quarterback was in negative yardage. Like it was like, he had thrown for like negative seven yards or something like that. And I just thought it was like, could I do better? Like, could, could have I gotten one yard? And I mean, yeah, I think the answer is probably no. I mean, you have to have respect for how unbelievably athletic these guys are. Um, but it does kind of make you think like you, you could theoretically get lucky and just like, I would throw one terrible duck of a pass to like a guy to, to, to a running back that was like five yards in front of me. And I would feel like an absolute hero for making that one pass, you know, like, I did it. Yeah, I keep it, they, they were not entertaining the question of could you fill in for the whole game. There was they were going one yard, you know. And one yard. Like, yeah, you, you know if it's if it's Good maybe luck. a you know a, anyway a draw play or something, and the offensive line gets it for you. Yeah, you can get one yard, but they were not uh, entertaining about if you could keep it up for the entire game and keep on getting tackled and so forth. But, oh, uh, can you imagine how just battered your body would be i mean even like I, I i have a an okay back now but i've had back problems in my in my past um i just imagine how wrecked i would be like i mean by halftime by by halftime by the first drive by the second play whatever it is like i mean like if you think about it like when was the last time you were hitting anyway in your life like, I mean, the last time someone like the last time your brother smacked you or like someone kind of shoved you a little more than usual, like it's kind of hilarious to think about, like the the collisions these dudes are putting themselves through. And the last time you felt anything like 10 percent akin to what they feel in one play, I mean, it just it doesn't happen right in, in normal civilized life. You are just not touched that much. <laughs> Oh, that's a great point. And, you know, the question was, could a normal person gain one yard? Ult- ultimately, I know these guys are bigger than average, but they're ultimately all people. You know, it's not like there's some other species out there that, or, you know, uh, they are normal people out there that are uh, continually getting hit. Yeah, it's I, I can't believe this sport exists, really. 
it's yeah it's wild it's it's super it's super fun to uh it's super fun to see um looking at our game script though i do feel like i got out of order here a little bit um any thoughts that you have on uh on leadership on this team and, and kind of how you're seeing things progress yeah yeah uh so for the last few weeks i've been thinking because the defense started out pretty weak to start the year and I've, I've been thinking this whole time hey if jamal adams is healthy and contributing uh we we saw with the Legion of Boom years a really strong second get, secondary can boost everything around it. Maybe that's the key for the Seahawks for from the key to take the Seahawks from being like in the 500 mix to really into the playoffs. But there's a new player who I think is actually the, the really the key to determine whether the Seahawks are kind of in the the seven to nine win mix or or really maybe knocking on the door of being one of the like the seventh or eighth best team in the whole NFL. And I think that's DK Metcalf. Um, look, it was okay. So DK Metcalf is tough because at this moment, I think he's a, I think he's an amazing 10 win player in the NFL. There's so many things he does, right? You can't argue that it, it was an amazing draft pick. You know, he's, he's worth the contract, but I don't think the way he's playing the game right now is going to help you get to the Super Bowl. Uh, One thing I did want to shout out is he's 55th all time in yards per game in NFL history, which is, which is pretty high. So nonetheless, I think there's a lot of stats underneath that really make me think that, Hey, I don't know if he's getting everything he can out of his considerable skill set. His, you know, this guy is six foot four. He's 235 pounds. And he competes as a sprinter. Like I do think there's there's some things that he's leaving on the table. And what got me thinking about it was he caught this 30-yard pass with about five minutes left in the game. He beats the cornerback. And it's it's a little hard to tell. I, I went and looked back at it. It was it was a little more hard to tell looking back at it than I did in the moment. In the moment, I he faces, he's kind of on the sideline, he's catching the ball, and right in front of him is the safety, Daxton Hill. So DK is six foot four, he's 235 pounds. Daxton Hill is six feet, 191 pounds. And to me, it looked like like DK just bent out of bounds, didn't want to take him on one on one. I even looked back at the all 22. There is nobody else for the Bengals on that side of the field. If he can somehow plow through Daxton, it's a house call. It's a touchdown. Now, I don't want to, on that particular catch, it could have been the case that the momentum of the ball was just taking him out of bounds and there was nothing he could do. But it made me think, it seemed like he gave up on that one kind of easy. He had a few inches and, and about 40 pounds on this safety, and it didn't seem like he was looking to kind of take him one-on-one and and see and get some yardage behind there. So, DK's tough week started. I thought it started with the press conference where he said, hey, Devin Witherspoon's going to take Jamar Chase. I couldn't really remember a bulletin board material type thing like that where he's not even saying I'm going to do it. He said, hey, my teammate's going to do that. It's his fifth year in the league. I think you got to be a little smarter about, about what you're saying in front of the press like that. I mean, to set up a rookie on your team and say, hey, this rookie's going to shut down your best player, by the way, it just seemed... It seemed like a kind of thing if it was your coworker doing it, you'd be like, "Hey, hey, man! Like, uh, okay, I'll take care of it, but you don't have to uh, get on me for that." 
He also had the unsportsmanlike penalty deep in the game. So DK, 70 career games. That's his 20th penalty. For comparison. So 20 penalties in 70 games. For comparison, Tyler Lockett, 131 career games. He's only been flagged for 15 penalties. Doug Baldwin, who was called Angry Doug, 123 games. He only ever had 13 penalties. That that The penalties have to stop. I went all the way to the top. Jerry Rice, 303 career games, only 32 penalties. So DK has almost caught up to Jerry Rice. He's only about 15 years behind him. Uh, broken tackles, because that's what I wanted to see on that play was a broken tackle. Over the last two years, 22 and 23, DK's got 122 receptions. And in that time, he's only got two broken tackles. Two broken tackles. Hmm. This guy's way bigger than everybody else. I looked at some of his contemporaries uh, in that same time period. Justin Jefferson with seven broken tackles. His college teammate, A.J. Brown, with nine broken tackles. And on the other side today, Jamar Chase had 14 broken tackles over the last two years. I went back to Doug Baldwin, really tiny receiver. Pro Football Focus only started tracking this in 2018, which was his last year. He had 50 receptions in his last season and four broken tackles. So DK, even though he's he's considerably bigger than all these guys, he he's not really breaking tackles. That's coming out in yardage after catch. He is averaging 3.8 yards after catch. That's two or three yards less, again, than... A.J. Brown, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, two or three yards less on on every catch after the catch. And the last one, red zone zone target percentage, because we're having these red zone problems. DK Metcalf, career, the whole career, the whole five years, red zone target percentage, 44.6. And once again, the same contemporaries, all quite a bit higher than 44%. Jefferson is at 50%. Um, Jamar Chase is at 59%. A.J. Brown's at 57%. So that's quite a few. That's, um, you know, it just made me kind of think like, man, I, I wish, I wish, it just feels like there's there's something on the table. We mentioned a few weeks ago, like, hey, DK had kind of a quiet 100-yard game here. How did we kind of miss it? And I think it, I think he gets those yards. I think he tends to get those yards early in the game, early in drives. And I think I think there's... I think there's a lot more space for him to use that that frame that that body to um to really get them when they count, you know. So my biggest takeaway from what you just said, and I mean, awesome research all around, is the penalty stuff. I mean, I I feel like I can live with all the yardage stuff you just said. I would love to see better numbers in the red zone, but I, I feel like I can let all of that go. If the penalties and I, I want him to play on the edge and be aggressive. Um, I, I, I almost always agree and love what Pete says, but I really didn't like the way he responded to that penalty from DK, um, both both with Brock and Salk and during his press conference. He kind of just made an excuse for DK of like, oh, he didn't hear the whistle. If you watch the replay, I mean, it, it's clear that the play's over. And like DK just, I mean, shoves this dude. It, it does not feel like, a, oh, I didn't hear the whistle. I was just making a block. It looked like I'm super frustrated and I'm going to shove uh, like someone as hard as I possibly can. 
Um, which actually, by the way, would be kind of fun if you if you were to like take DK to um, some sort of like a trampoline zone or something like that, a place with a foam pit and just and maybe like set up some sort of a harness on your neck so that you don't get whiplash, you know, to kind of protect yourself. And then just ask DK Metcalf, shove me as hard as you can into the foam pit. That would actually be quite a thing because that dude, you, you ta- you're talking about another elite NFL, I mean, another elite athlete on planet Earth, and DK shoved that dude, and he went flying. I mean, it is wild to think how strong he is. Um, but uh, to me, it's it's just there's no real excuse for it. You have to you have to be smarter. You know, I I, I think DK's a great personality. I I I think his his play on the field has been great. I'm glad that we signed him. I'm glad that he's a Seahawk. But I mean, I think you mentioned in your notes what were year five, right? With DK, like at at this point, I need to see more. I need, I well, I should, I need to see more maturity. I need to see less dumb penalties, um, and more just playing football. You know, I mean, and I get it. You get frustrated, whatever. But um, clearly, to me, you know, it goes back to clearly this is a weakness and clearly other teams are targeting him and talking to him and trying to push his buttons. And so at at any point in your life, when when the outside world has identified a weakness and they start exploiting it, like you you really got to, you know, you got to figure it out. You got to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, I'm doing something wrong here. I hope that someone's saying that to him. I hope that there's guys in the locker room that are like, bro, <laughs> what are we doing? I mean, you're you're awesome. Like, don't worry about it. Like, we'll be fine. Just, you know, just play football. Well, that's where I really missed. Uh, and when you look back on Doug Baldwin's career stats, it might not look like much, but that's where you kind of feel like, ah, if Doug Baldwin is leaving this wide receiver group. You know, it would it would just be really different. Um, going back to what Pete saying that uh that DK didn't hear the whistle. I thought that that was Pete's way of saying or that Pete was going to handle it very differently internally. But that was one of those things where Pete, Pete, the doors open with Pete until it's closed, you know? And I kind of thought that that was a, a, my suspicion was that was his very sly way of saying of like diffusing things publicly so he could handle it how he wanted internally because it didn't make a lot of sense. I hope but it's so. also like what are you gonna do? Keep on talking about this one penalty for like ten minutes to get to like the bottom of it, you know? No, and I hope that's the case, and I hope that um, you know in Pete's way that he's. Uh, direct about it, right? Direct with DK about it. And, and it's certainly, it's something that's hurting the team. And, and I know that Pete's sensitive to that because, you know, it's a, you know, the, I believe the first rule of being a Seahawk is always protect the team. And it's definitely, um, to me, it seems like a first rule violation for sure. So, um, uh, man, are we already and I do want to emphasize that DK is a great, I, He's the great. criticisms yeah. here is like, okay, how did the Seahawks get from in the playoff mix right now to in the Super Bowl picture, which I think they're clearly outside of. And I think it's like DK is a player who's so good enough that he does get you into the playoff mix as your number one wide receiver, you know. But when you're looking for like, okay, how does this team get in into the Super Because it seems like there's a hard line 
about contending for the Super Bowl, and the Seahawks are, are on the outside looking in right now. How do they get on the inside? I, th- I think it would be a, an evolution and maturity in a, a player like Metcalf, who th- this is a very young team. He counts as a veteran on this team at this point, which is kind of the exciting part of it, how, how young everybody is. But he, for better or worse, he is a veteran uh, on this team. And it, it'd be tough to be one of these many first or second year guys who are contributing so much, and you're seeing your fifth year guy commit these penalties that you're not doing. Um. So speaking of him being a veteran on the team, I don't know if you heard this, and I I have not done this research, so I should I should preface that. Um, but a trusted source, the Brock and Salk show, they were saying this week that Jake Bobo and DK Metcalf are the same age. Which, if that's correct, and I, I'm going to assume it is because they're, um, you know, the show of record. I would say on uh, on 710 ESPN. Um, that's wild. Like if you talk about like, I mean, Jake Bobo was in college for a while and DK got out of college fast. I mean, that is like, that's crazy that they could both be the same age. I I did notice this, that Jake Bobo is a 25 year old rookie. And I was wondering what, yeah, what was, <laughs> cause I couldn't really find the gap years in his, <laughs> can you imagine being 24 years old? Anyway. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I know some of those guys continue to play and then they end up, you know, getting a master's or something. So it's it's possible that he did that. I guess he went, excuse me, he went to Duke first and then from Duke to UCLA. So it could just be that he, um, yeah, maybe he's got a master's up his sleeve or maybe he started some master's work on something, which would be, I mean, pretty unbelievable. That'd be pretty cool. Dr. Bobo. I mean, even with that, though, wouldn't wouldn't that make more sense if he was 24 this year, though? It feels like there's an extra, like if he went a fifth year. Yeah. It feels like there's an extra year. Maybe, maybe, hey, maybe he's hung out for a year, got right. And and by the way, standing invitation, Jake Bobo, if you want to come on the podcast, we'd love to have you, first of all. Um, and, uh, and you can kind of talk us through your collegiate career and, and what you did, um, maybe your favorite class at Duke and your favorite class at UCLA. That's kind of, it might be a fun question, but, um, yeah, maybe you can kind of speak to, you know, the kind of the East coast vibe versus the West coast vibe. Inquiring minds want to know. So, um, Jake, if you want to, uh, come on the podcast, uh, as far as I know, there's no way for you to contact us. Um, and we don't give out an email address or phone numbers. I I don't, if someone wanted to get a hold of the podcast, I have no idea how they would do that. Um, but, you know, that said, we live in the, in the age of the internet. We live in the information age. And so I'm sure you can find a way to find us. Um, AI might, might be able to help. You might be able to ask, you know, someone that works in the locker room, if they could Google us. Um, if you Google me, you might find my LinkedIn page. I don't know. Um, best of luck to you, Jake, if you want to join the podcast, your standing invitation, you are always welcome. Google us being us 25 years of Bobo, a 25 part podcast series. That'd be great. That, that I mean, man, if that's not going to drive subscribers, I have no idea what will drive subscribers. People want to know. People want more. Um, are we on to Pete Nuggets already? It just seems like we've we're, we're suddenly at that point in the show. Any anything you want to say before we get to your nugget on Pete? Uh, the Pete Nugget this week is sponsored by the Denver Nuggets. Oh, they reached out across whoa. sports, and they've. 
Yeah, and once again, this is costing us quite a bit, but I, I do think it's worth it. Would you like to lead off with a pea nugget or should I? Um, sure. No, I'm happy to. Um, you know, my biggest takeaway from listening to Pete's press conference on Monday and hearing him on the Brock and Salk show um, and hearing him in the in the post-game press conference, and it's so obvious if you compare Pete's tempo and his attitude after this game versus after the Rams game. He's, he's a completely different person. And it's just funny to think that Pete, I think, feels the same way about this game that everyone does, which is, oh, there's a lot. There is a lot to like about this game. And um, it became really apparent listening to all of those different moments with Pete um, early in this week that uh, he really likes this team. I think there's a lot that he enjoys about the way this team plays. Um, whether that's the energy Jamal and and Witherspoon are are clearly bringing to the team, and and I think that's as obvious as you can get. Um, whether that's Gino, who I just think he absolutely loves, and and even though Gino had his struggles, I, I think that Pete sees some some great things there. Or whether that is you know again a little duct tape, but I think there's a lot to like about this offensive line. I mean, even I, you might even say the offensive line was the biggest weakness of the team this week. I don't know if you would say that. That's I think that's what I would say, though. And even that I'm not sitting here saying, oh, man, these guys are terrible. Like, I, I think they were injured and I think they got a rookie starting, you know, and, and I think that's kind of the whole story right now. Um, so, yeah, my, my takeaway, my Pete Nugget is he clearly was encouraged and he clearly loves this team. It's a great point. And when if you look back, 17 to 13 loss against the Bengals in the Bengals stadium. That's that's the type of game that like a winning team loses, if that makes sense. I felt the same way about the Niners going down 19 to 17 in Cleveland against the Browns this week. It's like, okay, well, they lost, but you know, that that's that's the they're, you know, except for the 2007 Patriots and the 1972 Dolphins, you know, everybody gets them and and that's the type of game that a winning team loses. Uh, for my Pete Nugget, I'm going back to Marshawn Lynch. And I noticed he said the same thing in both the Season of Boom YouTube series and on the Shannon Sharp podcast, which I, I think were recorded pretty separately from one another. But he said the same thing in both of those, that Pete acts the same than after a win or a loss in the building the next week. And there was something about the way Marshawn said it that you could kind of feel that he was also talking about and maybe it was from his time in Buffalo maybe from his time with the Raiders that you could feel that some NFL coaches maybe really freak out after a loss or things just get really intense around the building or or in some way things just really change but you, you could tell that Marshawn really respected Pete for treating everybody the same and doing the same things after a win or a loss these, these kind of days of the week that Pete has that that determines the practice week. I think that's really important in terms of like, hey, we're going to do the same thing whether we win or whether we lose. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of, I bet he's using the loss to help propel the team forward this week instead of freaking out, maybe starting to change things around and, and kind of destabilizing everybody. Uh, it, was, it was something very subtle that I, I was interested to hear Marshawn say it with so much respect. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard Pete plenty talk about his philosophy and the philosophy of 
um, tell the truth Monday and the philosophy of always compete. I think it's always compete Wednesday and, and turnover Thursday um, and, and what they're trying to accomplish with with each one and, and how each each day is designed to churn the page. Right. So Monday, let's tell the truth. Let's figure out what we did wrong this week and let's just look at the the film unapologetically. Right. And, and let's not make excuses. We're just going to tell the truth. Um, Wednesday, always compete Wednesday. All right. Now we're turning the page. You know, the, the, the week last Sunday is completely behind us. We're competing against each other for this next week. And then, you know, it, the biggest thing that Pete believes in, which is it's all about the ball. It's all about that turnover ratio and differential and all that. So, you know, creating turnovers on the defensive side and protecting the ball on the, on the offensive side. Um, yeah. Having, I mean, like any good leader that you've ever been around, like having stability of philosophy is such a massive thing. And I've I've heard Pete talk about it all the time. I, I read his book years ago, Always Compete, where he talks about those first couple of firings, right, uh, with the Jets and and with New England, and how before he got the USC job, he was committed to the idea that he was going to have a philosophy, and that if he ever got a chance again that it would be Pete Carroll's team. He was going to do it the way that he felt convicted, the way he felt like you're supposed to do it. Um, and I mean, it uh, it's worked pretty well, right? I mean, it, the proof's in the pudding. And I think he does things fairly similar to the way he does it at U- USC. I think that, you know, the his his basic philosophy of week in and week out is, you know, is, is very, there's a through line there. So, no, I, I love that. I love that nugget. Um, I I have to do my snap count portion. I uh, this this is um, snap counts brought to you by um, uh, what's that pickle? Glassic is that the the name of the pickle? You know Glassic pickles, about? yeah. Is it Glassic or Blassic? I, I think it's with a V. Velasic, yeah. Um, I, I the reason why is because I believe it. They they snap when you when you. You, you, you can snap a pickle and that's when you know it's a really good pickle. And so that's they they were kind enough to want to sponsor the podcast. And I told him, I was like, I'm going to have a hard time remembering the name of your brand. But I've I've enjoyed those pickles many a time. I like a pickle on um, my hot dog. In fact, when I have a hot dog, um, I think I have a, a kind of a loaded hot dog philosophy. And uh, yeah, Velasic, I believe, is the correct brand name. And, um, and yeah, so anyway, thanks to them, they haven't sent us any money and they didn't really, they haven't so much reached out to us as it just seems like such an obvious sponsorship. We just kind of wanted to extend it out to them. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, thanks to them for, um, for the snap count. And we wanted to create a sense of competition with ourselves. We also reached out to the count at Sesame street to see if they could sponsor it kind of from that angle. But I think going with the the snap, emphasizing the snap over the count uh, is a winning strategy. Yeah. And it's always hard with, um, you know, public broadcasting, first of all, very important. And, and I speak for miles and myself when I say that we are uh, absolute supporters of PBS but it does it it does it's a problem when they want to sponsor things right because we're talking about public funds and okay how does that work with sesame street and and so it's we 
we didn't really want to put them in a tough position. I don't think either where they had to sponsor something. They wanted to sponsor something. They would desire to sponsor something. And yet it's public funds and it just gets kind of weird. So, um, but all that to say, we are happy to free of charge, shout out PBS and the great work that those folks are doing. Um, probably the OGs of podcasting, I suppose. I mean, I feel like that's maybe where things got started. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but um, here are the snap counts that stood out to me. And it, it's not going to surprise you. I got some big fellas on my snap count watch because that's that's where my heart's at. So number one, the, the first guy that comes that really stood out to me, um, and certainly he's a large man, so he would stand out to anyone is Anthony Bradford. 100% of the snaps at guard. Um, something I forgot to mention before. Here's a nice little tidbit about Bradford. He got a, a plus 90 grade from pro football focus in his run blocking, um, which is pretty wild. I mean, wow. that's that. I mean, it's funny. Pro football focus. You see a guy with like an 85 or an 80 grade and you're like, hey, you. You were doing some work. The fact that he was able to get a 90 grade on the run blocking. Now, I haven't seen the pass blocking grade, and I'm assuming he struggled there a little bit. Um, but I think the reason why you draft Anthony Bradford is because, you know, he's going to move humans and he's a big, big man. And so that pretends really well for the future. You know, I, I think pass blocking, we can keep working on that and he's going to keep developing that side of his game. But man, if you have an absolute mauler in there at guard and he just wants to, you know, take take guys to the shed, that's that's going to be really cool. So um, so I love that. I love 100 percent snaps for Bradford, because to me, that's a lot of opportunities to get better and a lot of film for him to review with his coaches. Jamal Adams, 85 percent of the snaps. So I think it's safe to say we're full go. Jamal is, he's in the game plan. There's no restrictions, which is awesome. And I mean, could not be happier for somebody who went through such a tough injury. Um, Boye Mafe, one of my favorite guys on this team, 56% of the snaps. You talk about a young player who last year was just learning how to play in the league at this level. The development the Boye has made and to see him being a massive contributor is, is really, really cool. Um, here's my bummer one, uh, miles. Here's the one I'm not as happy about. Cause I, I want to see this number higher and higher for this guy, cam young, 9% of the snaps. Um, so, you know, certainly not the impact game that cam had last, or, or I guess two weeks ago now, um, where he, I think was in for what, 23, 29% of the snaps, something like that. Um, so would love to see more and more from cam, um, and you know, it's a bit above my pay grade. It could be that this particular game just didn't call for his skill set quite as much, but I'm, I'm always rooting for him. And then another number that I felt was a little low and I was a little surprised because I feel like, man, he was making an impact while he was in the game. Derek Hall with 22% of the snaps on defense. Um, so, you know, there, there's kind of some numbers. I don't know if any of those jump out to you or not. Um, but, uh, thanks to the people at the pickle company for their, uh, their financial, um, consideration, but they haven't sent any money yet. Future financial consideration. Uh, what stood out to me was that the Seahawks, uh, really controlled the ball for most of this game. The Bengals only had 54 offensive snaps or 54 snaps for the Seahawks defense. So those small snap counts for Cam Young and Derek Hall, that's, that's really just a handful of plays. 
So the yeah, the Bengals offense had 54 snaps and the Seahawks offense had 74. So there's a really big gap. I was really curious how that um, affects the defense the next week. Do you feel it? Do you feel we're talking about how all these collisions, do you feel refreshed if you've done everything to get ready and you play 20 snaps in the game or is it still, uh, anyway, obviously they'd want to play more, but I was, I wonder yeah. how many snaps it takes to feel tired the next yeah, day. Yeah. Like it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at say Derek Hall at 50 or at 22% versus Boye Mafia at 56%, you know, how much more does Boye's, body hurt with double the snaps, you know, or over the double the snaps. That's kind of a, yes, that would be kind of interesting to know. And then to take a step further, um, Chenna Nuoso had, I believe 78% of the snaps I don't have in front of me, but I think that numbers it's, it's in the seventies for sure. Um, so yeah, it would be kind of interesting. Yeah. The Derek and, and Boye are, um, uh, they're younger, so you would imagine they would recover a little faster anyway. But if you were to ask those three gentlemen, hey, 22% of the snaps, how's your body feel? Hey, 56%, hey, 78%. There is probably a sliding scale. They're all playing the same position. But um, yeah, I mean, you imagine, you imagine it's, it is rough coming back week after week in the NFL. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to even wrap your head around how much they put their bodies through. And then twenty two percent is an is a tough one because there's no way you're feeling good personally about that. That's not very much playing time, but then it's enough that you maybe <laughs> maybe got dinged up a little bit as well. It's it's a tough tough one. Uh, speaking of beloved segments on the show that uh, listeners and viewers have have trusted over the years and the decades of, of Seahawks football. Um, I've been finally brought to financial ruin by sponsoring the Belichick strategy moment of the game over the last several decades. And uh, since Bill Belichick got blown out the last two weeks before this one and then defeated by his own longtime backup QB, Brian Hoyer, and the Las Vegas Raiders this last week, you know, the Belichick strategy moment of the game that's not quite hitting... uh, it's not quite hitting as hard as it would as it would have. Um, I do want to say though, if a child, uh, people are Bill Belichick is under a lot of criticism right now for a legit reason. Uh, but if a child was born right now and you met them 15 years later when they're a 15 year old and they were starting to learn about football and they said, "Hey, was Bill Belichick the greatest coach in the game?" and you said, "Well, the the 2020." 2023 Patriots were really terrible. It was it was really bad back there. He was he was terrible. Uh, that child would say, "I thought he won six Super Bowls. I thought he had been to eleven Super Bowls as a coach over the years. I thought he was no the no 2023 was bad. Um, it wouldn't really make. Let, let's have some historical perspective here. He's still he's still the best. So, um, I got a trivia question for you. I'm going to ask you the same question for Bill Belichick's career, and then the same question for Pete Carroll's career. Okay. So, so Bill Belichick, as a young 23-year-old in 1975, mm-hmm. was hired by the Baltimore Colts. The next year, he moved to the D- Detroit Lions. He was their assistant special teams coach. He hasn't stopped working in the NFL since. 48 straight years working in the NFL. He was an assistant coach for 20 of those years, head coach for 28. 
So every year, about four to six teams just have an absolute disaster of a season. I'm going to call it four wins or under, right? So it happens to four to six teams. It's about an eighth of the league is in that disaster zone, four wins or under. Out of Bill Belichick's 48 years in the NFL, how many times? Well, he was an assistant for 20 of them. He wasn't really controlling things a lot of the time. How many seasons did he have that were four wins or less? Well, I mean, obviously, I know this. So, I mean, it's a super easy trivia question. It's a rhetorical question. Okay. So, just don't answer then? Just no, no, no. Stay... I, was, I was kidding. It's, okay. Well, it's, I'll, you know, I'll, how I'll many... Give me a how, shot. It's an unknowable question, but, you know, you can take it... You, you know, it's it's designed for a guess, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll surmise. Um, I would guess that he has had 28... No, 48 years. Holy moly. 48 years out of 48 seasons as a coach or assistant coach. I would say that of those 48, eight have been four wins or less. The answer is one. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) One time has he had this disaster season. It was 1983 with the New York Giants. It was Bill Parcells' first year in New York. Now, there 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 is an asterisk here. 1982 was shortened by a strike. So the Giants had four. They were, it was a short season. They went four and five. I threw that one out. Four and five, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. So really, 1983, they went three and 12 with one tie. Bill Belichick was the linebackers and special teams coach. And then they won the Super Bowl three years later. So that was kind of like the start of a rebuild there. I don't know how that happened. 20 years as an assistant coach is a whole career. So I don't know how it happened. And with seven different teams, this, you know, this wasn't all new. So anyway, it looks like he's in line for one of those this year. Um, between Pete, so Pete Carroll, I counted 53 complete seasons between NFL coaching, college coaching. And I was able to find two years of his college playing four four wins or less. Would you like to guess? Okay. So give me the total number. Total number of years coaching. I mean, yeah, Pete Carroll. So he hit, he he took two the year two thousand off, which had to be really crazy for him. That's when he developed, you know, the whole philosophy. He had four years as a player. I could only find two of them. Uh, I couldn't find his JUCO years. I looked, I looked, and then he's had forty nine years as a coach. So he's he's had fifty three completed NFL completed football seasons. But I, I looked at 51 of them, uh, 20 in college and 29 in the NFL. It's been at well, 10, I, 12 different teams overall. So I, I feel as though I can fairly authoritatively speak to his last, well, his entire Seahawks tenure. And I mean, not that I can speak to every single year at USC, but it was pretty doggone good. So I am I'm going to make this statement as we as I kind of work through this math in my head. He never won less than four games with his time with the Seahawks or with his time with USC. That's going to that's my that's my guess going into it so far as I kind of work through this. You are correct. In and of itself is insane. I mean, that in and of itself, that's a lot of years of coaching. I feel like that's pretty, pretty doggone good. Um his his other two pro 
seasons, I I don't feel like we're that terrible. Like even his last year with New England, like they were starting to turn it around. I don't think it was really like disastrous. I just think that Bill Belichick was was the right guy for them to kind of move on to. And obviously he was, but I don't think it was the worst, the worst in the world. I, I do think there was some some tough times with the Jets. So I'm going to say that of those two stints, I'm going to make a guess that it happened tw- two or three times between New England and the Jets. I know I'm taking a long time on this. And then I'm just going to say for all of the time before that, college and you know different assistant spots he had we did see on the broadcast right he was at ohio i didn't know he was at the ohio state university i believe he was on the viking staff for a long time with bud grant assuming bud didn't lose a lot either so i'm gonna say two times uh during the time with the the east coast teams as the head coach i'm going to say i'm just gonna say two more times to be safe so i'm gonna say a total of four times for him uh, that was a beautiful walk through history. I, I appreciated it. Uh, the total is six. Six? Okay. So I'm pretty good. And unfortunately for Pete, so three of those years when he was at his beloved University of the Pacific mm. way back in the day. So it's six, which is a higher number than Belichick. But I almost... It, it, so the last time it happened to him was, was when he was an assistant with the Jets in 1992. They went four and 12. So he's had 29 NFL years. It's only happened twice to him in the NFL. That Jets year. In 1984, he was an assistant with the Bills. They went 2-14. and 14. And then uh, the other four were way back in history in his college assistant days. That is... I don't know how both of these guys are able to do it. even Because Pete has had 23 total years as an assistant coach over the years. I don't know how these guys like... <laughs> I mean, okay, Pete had some losing years and he was at like his hometown, University of the Pacific. It's still been 30 years since he's had this disaster type season, you know? So anyway, unfortunately for Bill Belichick, it looks like it's going to happen this year. But I mean, how do you get through that many years? And you just like almost never step like, yeah, fall, fall down the trap door like that. I, it was crazy. That I that's my favorite trivia question you've ever had. I think that you just of all of the years we've been doing this, I think that's your best. I think that's the high water mark. I couldn't have been. I mean, you, you gave me a chance to compete on it. I felt like I had some data I could pull from. Um, that that was very good. And and the trivia that's sponsored by. Let me do your your ad read if you don't mind. Thank you. <clears throat> um. Uh. Miles Trivia, sponsored by Miles Ray. Um, that's it. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. Learn it, know it, love it. That's his mantra right there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, what do we have next? Oh, I'm looking at our notes. Is everyone in Seattle, is everyone in the Northwest in general, just still kind of watching Russell Wilson a little bit? Just kind of peeking, peeking over. Hey, what's going on with Russ? I'm going to click over back when we had normal TVs and we could click over to the other channel with our clicker. I'm literally moving my thumb as if I have a remote control in my hand. But it's not like that. Now we have to tell Alexa to um, to change the channel to a different app so that we can watch a different game. Um, 
Have you been watching Russ a little bit? I know I have. I mean, you kind of can't help it. It's such a weird, interesting story in Denver right now. It feels like a very negative thing to do. I think the Seahawks are a pretty uniquely positive franchise, even in, throughout their whole history I, and their fan base. And of course, Pete Carroll now feels like a very, a very negative thing to do, but I can't look away. It, it's crazy. So the Thursday night before this, Russ and the Broncos lose to Kansas City, which there's no shame in that, but his, <laughs> they're one in five on the year. He was 13 of 22 for 95 total passing yards on the game and two interceptions. Here's my thing, though. I really can't remember a team being more stuck than the Broncos are now. Like three or four years ago, it felt like the Texans were, it was also like, whoa, I can't remember a team that's in as bad a spot as the Texans like three years ago. And then three years before that, uh, or so when the the Browns had those back-to-back really terrible years, it was like, whoa, I don't remember a team being this stuck. But even those, the Browns and the Texans, the problem was they didn't have anybody on their team, right? But they, but then they had all this cap flexibility. Like the Broncos are one in five, and they have this huge, huge issue with with Russell Wilson's contract. I mean, it, it really seems, and and they also owe their second round pick to the Saints this year for Sean Payton's services, that's going to be on the brink of the first round. You know, that could be like the 34th, 35th overall pick. That's not nothing. Uh, Yeah, they're like totally hosed. And their third round pick to the Seahawks. I mean, so I'll say I, the only, I have no ill will whatsoever to Russell. I, last year I was rooting against him as hard as anybody only because um, the, the draft pick, right? I mean, you know, we wanted, and it's churned out pretty doggone good with the corner that we were able to get from, from that draft pick. Now at this point that we're talking about a single third round pick, um, I'm kind of okay with, Hey, they can start winning now. And you know, it's like, if it's the 80th pick in the draft versus the 89th pick, I'm not, I'm not super stressed about that. Like I was with the first round pick. Um, so I, I, I want to set the record straight and just say very clearly, I am not rooting against Russell Wilson. Um, he gave us some unbelievable years and it just turns out that our general manager sold high at the perfect moment. His house was in the middle of a massive inflationary crazy moment. He sold and then the economy tanked and he's the guy just holding a stack of cash. And that's John Schneider. I mean, it's it's the greatest trade in Seattle franchise history, I think. And it's wonderful um, to me. And I think we've talked about this a little bit. I find myself rooting for Russ and rooting against Sean Payton. I mean, and I'll just say as I watch the game um, and if Sean's listening to this and I, I hope he is. Um, I respected Sean Payton the entire time he's with the saints. Now, albeit I didn't, I didn't see a lot of press conferences and didn't pay attention to what he was saying. Um, but the way that he has deflected responsibility, the way that he has kind of at every turn thrown Russ down, you know, kind of down the stairs over and over again, um, saying weird things about Nathaniel Hackett, you know, talking about another coach after he leaves just a lot of uh, to me, extremely odd behavior and behavior that is not becoming at all of um, of a man or of a head coach in the NFL, for that matter. Um, 
I I went from feeling completely neutral about Sean Payton to like my entire life, you know, watching him in the NFL to now this last year at 39 years old being like, oh, man, I hope this guy fails. And I, I don't ever want to feel that way about another human. I want people to succeed. But man, it seems to me that he's made a real ass of himself. And um, I, I don't know. I, I I should probably stop talking because I don't want to offend Sean too much. Um, but I would be incredibly disappointed if I was his son, if I was watching my dad act like this. I don't know. I, that's where that's where my brain goes. Um, so I'm rooting for Russ, but holy moly, this was a this was a stinker. His stats before this game, his stats going into this game were pretty doggone good, right? I mean, he if you look at what he's done so far this season, like it, it hasn't looked bad. And then this one it really fell apart badly. I mean, this was a this was a tough game for him, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I think that Sean Payton, frankly, is looking more foolish than, than Russell is so far this year. All right. Now you're making me feel bad because I have been rooting against Russ because wasn't wasn't the, wasn't there a bit more of a feeling of, hey, I, you know, Seattle's holding me back. I need to get out of here to a to a real team and 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 lock lock in a big deal, you know? Did did he not get exactly what he wanted? I, so I did feel that way. I had, I was obviously rooting for the draft pick, but if I'm being intellectually honest, I I definitely had some vitriol um, last year for him. And yeah, the idea of, Hey, you, you, you wanted to leave, you pushed your way out. You tried to get John and Pete fired. I mean, you did a lot of weird stuff. And so you know, I but I, I the reason why I don't hold anything against him now is I can't imagine how hard last year was for him. And people will talk about the money. I, I've thought about this quite a bit. I mean, if you if I was to tell you, Miles, I'm going to give you buckets and buckets of money. I mean, more money than you could ever imagine making, but you will be a public figure and you will I mean, have terrible failure and like the entire world will see you do what you consider your best at in life, like your top skill. Everyone is going to say you are terrible at your at what you identify as your top thing that you are good at. I'm not instantly just saying, oh, I'm taking the money. It's worth it. I mean, that he went through. It's a terrible year that he had last year. And I can't imagine I can't imagine failing at that level, at, at, at the level he's failed at. I I can't imagine the money's worth it. Like I, I have to imagine that if he could go back in time, he would take a much smaller contract and stay with the Seahawks and and not deal with all of this emotion. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to feel really bad for him just because to see someone fail at this level is is so rough. Um, and it's continuing. I mean, it's crazy to see. I thought that this was going to be a good year for him. I was one of the people that thought, hey, you know, we'll see kind of a, a closer version of the old Russ with maybe some better head coaching, you know? I mean, and I, I say that with all due respect to Hackett. It was his first year on the job, you know? I mean, there's a lot of great coaches that need a couple of swings there, you know? Um, but, I mean, to your point, man, they are in purgatory when it comes to the money they have spent. I mean, I, I, we were texting last week about it, right? Um, what Sean Payton is making 18 million a year. I mean, that's crazy to think about. He's making 18 million a year. Russ is making like 30 million a year. 
and they are both the problem. I mean, it's just, it is wild to think about how much money Denver is flushing down the toilet and have committed to what looks like the wrong guys. Uh, I, when Sean Payne got hired, I totally, I mean, cause you, you know, Russell Wilson, Andrew Brees, both on the shorter side, you know, I was, I was imagining the same thing was going to happen as, as Drew Brees in the Superdome all those years. So it, it is really crazy to see this. Um, <laughs> so it seems like what the, this is, you know, from, from people who study the cap more than I, it seemed like the move was they had, they have to cut Russ this off season in order to avoid 2025 fully guaranteeing. And they're still going to have gigantic dead cap hits on their sheet for the next two years. I was looking at it, and the the Packers and the Buccaneers still have comparable cap hits for Tom Brady and, and Aaron Rodgers. So you, it's possible to build a, an okay team around this this huge kind of 30 million plus dead cap hit but it's like well the broncos are you know the broncos aren't starting from the place that the packers or the buccaneers are starting from you know they're they're one in five and they're gonna have to they're gonna have to deal with this huge dead cap hit the next two years and it sounded like they just had the 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 thinking was that it seemed like they just have to release him this offseason yeah yeah and and to your point they don't have a ton of draft capital moving forward i mean they have given up and you, not only do they not have a lot of draft capital moving forward, but you have to imagine the opportunity loss, right? I mean, imagine the talent that would current, the young talent that would currently be on the team if they don't make those trades also. So, I mean, it's, it's cra- it is crazy to think about a team that is missing three first round picks that it should have, you know, I mean, and second round picks and third round picks that it should have on the team right this second. And they're on other teams. I mean, it, it it's quite a hole for them to to to, to dig out of. And um, yeah, yeah, it, pretty pretty wild. Um, I I do hope for for Russ's sake that he's able to turn it around. And I do hope that he's able to look in the mirror a little bit and hopefully kind of evaluate um, maybe how he's handled things in the past. And you know, hey, we all need to keep growing and competing. And um, you know, I I wish only the best for Russ and his lovely family. Um, and I, I hope that Sean Payton, you know, uh, eats a bad pickle. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's it. A pickle with no snap. Ugh, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> a pickle with no snap. I, a word came to mind to describe a pickle that had lost its rigidity, rigidity. Um, but I'm not going to use that word because this is a family show and it just seems like the wrong thing to do, especially as we're wrapping up. Uh, who do you think, if they do cut him, who do you think Russell Wilson plays for in 2024? It seems hard to imagine the deal or the, I was kind of like, maybe the Steelers, maybe the Falcons, you could kind of like see, it, it seems hard, but if they do cut him, you'd have to go so like, you know, where would he go? It's, it seems like a hard, uh, and who would want his services and for how much? It, it's a tough, tough it's, scenario. It's so hard, man. And I mean... For me, I look at this and I think you look at what's happened to to Russ and it does, I will say, the the one piece of it that I do take a little bit of joy in even this year, and it's not joy in it not working for Russell, but it is good to see, I guess it's, um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's it's reaffirming of my belief that Pete is a really special coach, and and to see um, Russell struggle now, and to see Pete continue to flourish tells you something. You know, you were talking about the system earlier. It tells you something about that, doesn't it? That um, that that Pete really does have something special. So that's maybe that's a takeaway. If if there's any positive takeaway, it's like, oh man, yeah. Yeah, Pete's a pretty special guy. He's a he has a pretty special philosophy in the way he goes about things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. More special than I guess that was what got me started with with watching Russ was going, hey, is is Pete Carroll a bit more of a quarterback guru in in the most unconventional way, in a more vibes way, you know, more than an X's and O's way than than maybe we'd realized because yeah, I mean, he's he, to to propel Geno Smith to all these victories when when he was a known as a career backup, and for Russell Wilson to put up career backup type numbers without him, it was it's still shocking. It's still shocking, actually, to, to see it. I, maybe that's what is compelling me so much. I like I can't believe that it's that it's still happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think n- no one expected this, and I mean, even. You know, the the smartest guys at the NFL Network and ESPN and all of the analysts were saying, you know, just a year ago, this Denver team is just one quarterback away. Right. I mean, that was that was the the talking point of all the shows on ESPN. This Denver team is stacked. They are a quarterback away from the Super Bowl. And to see that just not play out and, and to be such a disaster, it has been um has been unreal but again i'm i'm rooting for him i hope he i hope he does well for the rest of the year and um you know uh broncos country let's ride let's ride yeah i had, I had to think about that for a second i wanted to just say go hawks and that that phrase in his brain is dead just broncos country now well, the Seahawks play another game on Sunday they will be hosting the Arizona Cardinals who are also one in five. Um, I think I would not be surprised if things are close at halftime, but I, I, it seems like with the Cardinals that like the quality of roster kind of wins out over the Cardinals over a hard four quarters. Depth. Yeah, depth. I, I agree with you. I, I think the Seahawks depth is great. Um, speaking of good stories, though, Dobbs, what an awesome story in the NFL. I mean, uh, he has been fun. I have enjoyed watching his success so far this year. Obviously, to your point, it, it hasn't translated into a lot of wins for them. Um, but it doesn't seem like quarterback has been this terrible glaring issue for them. Um, so happy for him. You know, there are some likable guys on that team. And uh, what what's a little concerning to me about this game is they seem a little pesky. Like they seem like one of those pesky teams that gives people a little bit of trouble to your point, watching a bit of that Rams game. It seemed as though the longer the game went on, the harder it got for them to to keep up with the Rams. You know, they were able to kind of keep it close in the beginning and eventually overall depth and talent just kind of wins out. Um, But whenever you play these pesky teams, you know, it always kind of gives you a little pause. And for goodness sake, we just saw um, we just saw the New York Giants go 
head to head with the Bills and and really a game they should have won. Um, and so, you know, we can look at teams in the NFL and think, ah, the dregs of the league. Ah, these guys are terrible. They're so far off. Um, they're all pretty good athletes. They're all elite. And none of those coaches are there because they're, you know, slappies. And so to that point, I, I'm you can't take any, you know, can't take a week off. Um, it is nice that it's at home. I think that will be good. And I think that now I hope I don't eat my words next week when I say this. But I, I think I believe it. I think that what happened against Cincinnati um, portends really well for what they're facing in Arizona for it not to be, you know, kind of one of those games that sneaks up on you, right? One of those, oh, no, you know, this is one of those games where you you slept on the opponent because I think they're going to come into this game with a little bit of, yeah, let's get that bad taste out of our mouth. We should have won that game we underachieved in these small areas. Let's, you know, let's really get our details right. So I think they're going to win handedly. And I, I actually, as I think through this a little bit based off of this Cincinnati game, I think maybe this was some good medicine for them. So um, I'm not going to give you a number. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a betting man. Um, I have no idea what the line of this game would be, but I think they're, I think they're going to handle um, Arizona. And I believe that they will part like the Red Sea for Hello. Kenneth Walker. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Oh, I thought that was the closer right there. Oh, oh <laughs> it was man. so good. It's just too good. Oh, man. I, I, uh, I, I didn't want to cut you off if there was any no, other no, not at Arizona all. I was going to say, at the start of the year, it looked like it was a possibility that you could have four walkover games between the Rams and the Cardinals. And it is... It is a bummer to see that not be true, to see the Rams edging into playoff contention and for the Cardinals to be, they're one in five, but I think it makes sense to say they're an encouraging one in five. You're kind of going like, oh, okay, this team is actually already building something, uh, even though they do have a losing record. It's yeah. not a, an aimless one in five. Absolutely. No, I, I think they have a, they have a lot of talent. So, um, but yeah, I, I think we're, we're, we're on the right track. Um, I think that's it for us, Miles. I, I can't think of anything else to say. I feel like we've exhausted the conversation in the best way possible. Um, any concluders for the audience? Anything you want them to be thinking about? Any proverbs? Any um, any psalms? Any uh, Buddhist uh, um, learnings? Uh, just, you know, y- you pick it. Before enlightenment, chop wood carry water after enlightenment chop wood carry water thank you very much everyone have a great week